with you. Uh, Acts chapter 12 is where we are picking it up today as we continue walking through the uh, book of Acts together. If you don't have a Bible with you, um, all the verses will be on the screens right here and you can follow along that way if that is easier for you. Before we dive into that, um, some quick kind of exciting uh, church family news to share with you. So as you probably noticed, uh, Ryan, our uh, pastor who helps lead us in worship through music each week, he's obviously not here today. He's over in South Carolina for his girlfriend, Mary Kate's college graduation. But Mary Kate, okay, yeah, yeah. Well, that's not even the exciting part, but that is exciting. Yeah, congratulations on the graduation. The exciting part is that she is no longer his girlfriend, she is now his fiance. So that's pretty awesome. So yeah, if y'all are watching online, uh, Ryan, attaboy, way to go, Mary-Kate, we can't wait to have you here. We love you both and congratulations. So, all right, Acts chapter 12. Um, Have you ever had one of those days or uh, one of those weeks or maybe one of those months where like everything just seems to fall apart and go wrong? Like everything just falling apart and you kind of step back and it's just almost kind of humorous. And you're like, like, is the universe playing some cruel joke? Am I on like a hidden camera show? Like is somebody out to get me? Like, this, this is such a stupid example, but this happened to me a couple years ago. There was this day, and I had a craving for chicken wings. Now, if you don't know me well, like, chicken wings are my favorite thing on the planet. Like, wings are like my, you know, death row, last meal. It's going to be wings. And the other thing about me is that when I have a craving for food, it's not like a normal person craving. I'm, like, messed up in my brain. I'm neurotic. And so, like, if I have a craving, it's not like, man, that sounds really good. It's... I am moving heaven and earth until I satisfy this craving. Like my wife says that my cravings are worse than a pregnant woman. And so I've got this craving one day for chicken wings. It's been a long day. I'm like, I'm getting chicken wings for dinner. And so this was back when we were in South Carolina. So on the way home, I call my favorite wing place down the street from my house. I want to put in my order just 20 lemon pepper wings, extra crispy. And this place, they don't just do the lemon pepper dry rub, which like that's fine in a pinch. They've got the lemon pepper sauce. Right? It's a whole other level than the lemon pepper dry rub. And so what I do, I, I get those lemon pepper wings, I bring them back to my house, and then I toss the lemon pepper wings in some Frank's Red Hot sauce, because the lemon pepper sauce and the Frank's Red Hot sauce, it is like a match made in heaven. It is just the most beautiful thing on the planet. So I've been looking forward to this all day. I call, put in my order, and they say, oh, we're sorry, sir, our fryer is broken, so we don't have wings. So I'm like, man, that is awful. But there's a, there's a grocery store right down the street from the house, and their deli has decent wings. Not as good, but, but they're decent. So I'm like, all right, I'm going to go to the grocery store. We'll go to the deli, and I'll get some wings in the deli. So I walk into the grocery store, walk back to the deli. I'm like, hey, you know, like 20 wings. And they say, oh, we actually just ran out of wings for the night. And so I'm like, what is happening? So I walk back to the car, and like Christy can tell because my face is just like sunk. And she's like, what's wrong? I'm like, they don't have wings either. But fortunately, the saving grace is in the shopping center where that grocery store is. There's a Zaxby's. We don't have a lot of those here. Um, They're all over the south. It's kind of like Cane's, but it's not as good as Cane's. Um, But they have more stuff than Cane's. So uh, go to Zaxby's because Zaxby's has wings. Again, they're not great, but like craving wings. They've got wings. I'm going to get some wings. So pull up in the drive-thru. Get to the speaker. And no, I'm not making this up. They say, hey, welcome to Zaxby's. Just so you know. You know what they said next? Not we're out of wings. They didn't say that. It's even worse. They said, just so you know, our credit card machine is down and we are only taking cash. Is that okay? 
I'm like, no, that's not okay. This is the 21st century. Like, I haven't had cash in a decade. I don't even know where to go to get cash anymore. Like, is that why there's still banks open? Because you're supposed to go get cash? Like, no, it's not okay. I don't have any cash. And so they're like, well, we're sorry. We can't take your order. So I peel out, you know, in a frenzy, just sobbing because I'm not going to be able to get any chicken wings that night. And I, I just look at, at Christy, and I'm like, is this all some big joke? Like, am I on a hidden camera show where somebody's going to pop out and say, hey, you know, we got you. Surprise, it's just like, it seemed like the universe was out to get me. There was some force in the universe that didn't want me to be happy. And I'm like, this is the worst day in the world. Now, I know that that's stupid and ridiculous, and I completely overreacted and acted like a petulant child. I understand that, which, by the way, a complete side note tangent, but that's why it's funny to me when you, like, hear some people say, oh, you know, I think women are too emotional for leadership. It's like, have you never met a hungry man before? Like, <laughs> I mean, really? But anyways, I know it completely overreacted, but it's one of those moments I'm just like, everything is falling apart. There, there has to be something out there that is making all of these bad things happen to me. So if you had one of those moments, again, not with something like as stupid as not getting chicken wings for dinner, but we've all had those moments with, with serious things, with things that are a lot more consequential, right? Where we just look at our lives and we're like, man, is there some force in the universe that is out to get me, some force in the universe that hates me and doesn't want me to be happy and is trying to destroy me? Have you ever thought that before? You probably have. But you see, the answer to those questions is actually yes. Right, what we see in the New Testament is that there are very real spiritual forces of evil that exist that hate God and hate the people of God. And Satan and these spiritual forces of evil want to stop the work of God in our world and they will do anything they can to do that. And so what we see in Acts chapter 12 is we see the church come under attack again. But what we know on a spiritual level is that while you know, kind of on the outside in a physical sense, this attack that the church is going to face, it's at the hands of Roman governmental leaders. We ultimately understand on a theological level that behind those governmental leaders, this is ultimately a spiritual attack. That Satan and the spiritual forces of evil are working behind the scenes to attack the church. Right? Remember what Paul says in Ephesians. He says that we don't fight against flesh and blood enemies, basically that other people aren't the real enemy, that behind that are the unseen spiritual forces in the unseen world. And so what we're going to see today is that as followers of Jesus, we will face times where everything seems to go wrong, where life just in kind of a completely random sometimes way feels awful and everything is falling apart and it feels like there's someone out to get you. And that's because there is someone out to get you. But what we're going to see in Acts 12 is we're going to see through this story how we can respond during those times and still maintain peace, still maintain inner joy even when we walk through those seasons. So Acts 12, we're going to pick it up in verse 1. This is what God's word says. It says, about that time, King Herod Agrippa began to persecute some believers in the church. He had the apostle James, John's brother, killed with a sword. When Herod saw how much this pleased the Jewish people, he also arrested Peter. This took place during the Passover celebration. Then he imprisoned him, placing him under the guard of four squads of four soldiers each. 
Herod intended to bring Peter out for public trial after the Passover, but while Peter was in prison, the church prayed very earnestly for him. So the story starts out telling us that this is all happening during the reign of King Herod Agrippa. Now, if you're familiar with the gospel accounts in the New Testament, you've heard that name before, Herod, but it's kind of confusing because there are three different Herods in the New Testament. The Herods were kind of a political dynasty during their day. So first you had Herod the Great. Herod the Great is the one who ordered the slaughter of all the newborn babies at the birth of Jesus because Herod the Great heard that this newborn baby Jesus was going to be the king of the Jews. And so he was scared, he was intimidated, so he ordered the slaughter of all these newborn boys in order to try to take out Jesus. That's Herod the Great. And then later, about 30 years after that, during the ministry of Jesus, you had Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas is the one who had John the Baptist beheaded. And here, this is the third Herod, this is Herod Agrippa, so this guy is the grandson of Herod the Great, and he's the nephew of Herod, um, of Herod Antipas. And so this guy, this Herod, he was appointed to rule over Palestine, kind of the area where the Jewish people lived. He was appointed to rule over that area by Rome. And what history tells us is that this Herod, he wasn't really a great leader. He wasn't that much of a great ruler. Um, In fact, the only reason he was appointed to this job was because as a child, he came from a wealthy family, so he went to a nice school, and as a child, his buddy at school was a kid named Claudius who ended up becoming the emperor of Rome. And so when Claudius, his childhood friend, becomes emperor of Rome, he appoints his buddy Herod to this post as king over Palestine. Now, when Rome would appoint these localized kings or these localized rulers, these rulers had one job and one job only. Their only responsibility was to maintain peace. That was it. The reason Rome put these kind of small K kings in these regions all around the world was to keep the peace. Keep everyone in line. Don't let anyone rise up and revolt against Rome. Right? If you remember the term back from, you know, history class in school, Pax Romana, you know, peace in Rome. That's what that meant. Like that, peace was the highest value of Rome. It's ironic because they kept peace with the sword, right? But, you know, to each his own. But peace was the value. So Rome would appoint these localized rulers and said, at all costs, keep the peace. So anything that challenged the status quo of Rome had to be stamped out immediately. And so you have this guy, Herod. He is ruling over the Jews on behalf of Rome. And so for Herod, this church, these new Christians presented a kind of dual-natured threat to his reign. Because first of all, you have these Christians who have started to go around, and these Christians have said, hey guys, listen up. Uh, Caesar actually is not Lord. Jesus is actually the true Lord. Right? And so Herod is saying, no, these, these Christians are committing blasphemy against the empire, against Caesar. They are not following, you know, the worship of the emperor like they're supposed to. So they're a threat to Rome. But, but also, the Jews that, rule, that Herod ruled over, a lot of them hated the Christians because they viewed the church, they viewed these new Christians as blasphemers. And as heretics. So, so Christians represented this unique danger in Herod's mind where he thinks, man, I've got to do something about them. I've got to stamp them out because if they rise up and word gets out to the emperor, then I am done. So Herod's plan 
to deal with the Christians and to deal with the church. His, his strategy is to go straight to the top. He goes straight to the leadership of the church. He executes James, and then he has Peter arrested with plans to execute him after Passover. Because Herod is thinking, hey, if, if I can kill the leaders of the church, that will stop this thing, and that will stop the spread of the church. But Herod has bad theology. Right? He, he doesn't realize that James and Peter weren't the head of the church. He doesn't realize that Jesus is the head of the church. And that other Roman leaders already killed Jesus, but he didn't stay dead, and so nothing can actually stop the church. He doesn't realize that. So he thinks, man, if I can just take out some of the leaders, if I can take out kind of the, the front-facing people, everybody else will be scared, everybody else will get discouraged, and this thing will stop. So again, he, he arrests James. He executes him by taking off his head. He arrests Peter. And again, the plan is as soon as Passover is finished, he's going to rig this kind of sham trial and convict Peter, and the verdict is going to call for his head. So real quick, before we read the rest of the story, I think this part of it, it's an important thing to remind us that, that in our lives, in this world, on this side of eternity, closeness to Jesus doesn't guarantee us an easy life. I wish it did. I really wish it did. But it just doesn't. Closeness to Jesus doesn't guarantee you an easy, safe, pain-free life. Like Jesus had these kind of 12 disciples, the inner circle, who he spent the majority of his time with, like his best friends. But within those 12, he had another inner circle of three. And these three guys were like his best friends on the entire planet. And in that inner circle, within the inner circle, it was Peter, James, and John. And here, we see two of Jesus' three best friends on the planet suffering greatly. Two of the people who had the closest relationship to Jesus in all the world, one of them loses his head, and another is in jail about to lose his head. Again, closeness to Jesus doesn't guarantee us an easy life without suffering. James is dead. Peter's in prison, about to die. And so how will the church respond? Look again at verse 5. It says, but while Peter was in prison, what does the church do? It says, they prayed very earnestly for him. While Peter was in prison, the church prayed very earnestly for him. In the midst of suffering, look at this, and in the midst of persecution, the first response of the church is not to take up swords. The first response of the church isn't to appeal to Herod's boss. The first response of the church isn't to go to change.org and try to get some people to sign a petition for Peter's release. The first response of the church is prayer. Now, that response makes no sense at all, does it? That response makes no sense unless you believe that God is sovereign and that prayer moves the sovereign hand of God. And that's what as followers of Jesus we believe, isn't it? That our God is sovereign, and prayer not only changes us and our hearts, prayer moves the sovereign hand of God. And so the church, they're in trouble, and their response is prayer. Man, they believe that prayer is a more powerful weapon than even a sword. So they go to God in prayer. 
So let's continue the story. Look at what happens as a result of their prayer. It says, The night before Peter was to be placed on trial, he was asleep. Fastened with chains between two soldiers, others stood guard at the prison gate. So it's just Luke, the author, he's painting the picture that there's no way Peter can escape. It says, but suddenly there was a bright light in the cell and an angel of the Lord stood before Peter. The angel struck him on the side to awaken him and said, quick, get up. And the chains fell off his wrist. Then the angel told him, get dressed and put on your sandals. And he did. Now put on your coat and follow me, the angel ordered. So Peter left the cell following the angel, but all the time he thought it was a vision. He didn't realize it was actually happening. They passed the first and second guard posts and came to an iron gate leading to the city, and this opened for them all by itself. So they passed through and started walking down the street, and then the angel suddenly left them. Peter finally came to his senses. It's really true, he said. The Lord has sent his angel and saved me from Herod and from what the Jewish leaders had planned to do to me. When he realized this, he went to the home of Mary, the mother of John Mark, where many were gathered for prayer. He knocked at the door at the gate, and a servant girl named Rhoda came and opened it. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed that instead of opening the door, she ran back inside and told everyone, Peter is standing at the door. This is important. Look at the response. You're out of your mind, they said. When she insisted, they decided it must be his angel. I don't believe Peter's actually there. Meanwhile, Peter continued knocking, right? Because he's a fugitive. He's on the run. He's like, guys, no, seriously, it's me. You've got to let me in. So Peter continued knocking. When they finally opened the door and saw him, they were amazed. He motioned for them to quiet down and told them how the Lord had led him out of prison. Tell James, this is a different James, tell James and the other brothers what had happened, he said. And then he went to another place. At dawn, there was a great commotion among the soldiers about what had happened to Peter, Herod Agrippa ordered a thorough search for him. When he couldn't find him, Herod interrogated the guards and sentenced them to death. Afterwards, Herod left Judea to stay in Caesarea for a while. So what we see here is that as a result of the prayers of the church, God shows up, he moves heaven and earth, and Peter is miraculously freed. But here's, I think, what is kind of the funniest but the most fascinating part of this entire story. God moves and God responds to the prayers of the church, but at first the church doesn't even believe that God moved and responded to their prayers. God moves to what it seems to be very weak, very frail, very doubt-filled prayers. That's the kind of prayer that God answers us. Because do you catch this? Like Peter's about to die in prison. So the church gathers together. They have an all-night prayer meeting, and God answers the prayer. And when God answers the prayer, they don't even believe that he answered the prayer. They are not praying filled with faith that God would answer the prayer. They are praying filled with doubt. But even still, God responds to their prayer. I mean, doesn't that just drive a stake into the heart of this kind of like name it and claim it sort of prosperity gospel thing that says like whatever you pray for, if you just pray with enough faith, God will grant it. But the key is you have to really believe it and you have to pray with enough faith because apparently God answering your prayer relies on your faith, not his sovereignty and goodness. 
Right? But here, at least here, now don't get me wrong, I think, I think there's something to praying in faith and praying and trusting God, praying, believing God. There's something to that. That's, that's important. But at least here in this story, God is even answering weak and frail and doubt-filled prayers. I mean, that's good news for me. Because if I'm honest at times, like, all I can muster up is weak and frail and doubt-filled prayers. But we're seeing here that God is such a good, loving Father that, that these people are praying, not even believing that God will respond and answer their prayer. But instead of scolding them and coming down and, and saying, how dare you not really believe that I could do it? God is gracious and he's merciful. And even in their doubt, he chooses to answer their prayer. So I don't know, but I think maybe one of, one of the, the most healthy, spiritually forming things we can do, one of the, the best practices we can do in our lives is to pray even when we don't feel like it. To pray even when we're doubting that God will even respond to it. Even when all we can muster up is weak and frail and half-hearted and doubt-filled prayers when we even think that God won't respond to it. I think that this story is reminding us that God is honored when we even take those kind of prayers to him. Even our weak, doubt-filled prayers can move the sovereign hand of God. So let's be reminded for us, when you're suffering, pray. Right? Whenever you're struggling, pray. Whenever it feels like the enemy is just hiding behind your door and waiting at the first chance he can get to destroy you, pray. But there's another difficult dynamic in this story that I don't want us to miss because I think it's really, really important. And that is this dynamic that James loses his head. James is executed while Peter is miraculously freed. Isn't that kind of weird? And listen, I don't think that it's because James failed to pray. Right? Luke doesn't explicitly tell us that James prayed here, but I would be willing you know, to bet the farm that as James is arrested and as he is being taken to the executioner's block, I will bet everything that James was praying. And so the, the difficult thing is that God answers the prayer for Peter, but he seemingly doesn't answer the prayer for James. And that's hard, isn't it? Like in, you've experienced that reality, right? Where we pray and sometimes we receive the answer that we prayed for. And then other times we pray and we don't receive the answer that we prayed for. Right? You've gone through that, right? I've gone through that. We all experience that. But like sometimes God gives the healing that we ask for and sometimes he doesn't. Sometimes God clearly gives us the sign we are hoping for, and sometimes he doesn't. Like sometimes God brings restoration to the relationship, and sometimes he doesn't. But see, notice here, if you look back in the story, if you look at verses 6 and 7 again, it is clear that Peter has an overwhelming sense of inner peace even before God answers his prayer. 
even before he knows if this prayer will be answered and he will be freed and his life will be spared, Peter has peace. And by the way, Peter's assumption is that the prayer will not be answered. Peter's not operating in faith that he's going to be rescued because he already saw Herod kill James. He believes that's what is going to happen to him. He's thinking, God's not getting me out of this. This is it. This is the end. And again, we know he thinks that because when he's being freed by this angel, it says he thinks it's a vision. He doesn't even believe that it's actually happening as it's happening. So in Peter's mind, he is certain that he is about to die. So that's where Peter's at emotionally. That's where Peter's at spiritually. God's not coming through in this one. He's not answering the prayers. I'm about to lose my head just like James did. But look at what's happening the night before he thinks he's about to die. It says the night before he used to be placed on trial. He was asleep. He was asleep. He's not pacing around. He's not anxious. His heart's not racing. He's asleep. Fastened with two chains between two soldiers, and others stood guard. And suddenly there was a bright light in the cell, and the angel of the Lord stood before Peter. I love this. The angel of the Lord struck him on the side to wake him up. Right? Peter, in his mind, for all he knows, is about to go to the executioner's block, and he is sleeping like a baby. He is sleeping so well, Luke tells us, that this angel comes into the cell and this angel brings like all this glorious light from heaven and Peter is still asleep. Like this bright shining light from heaven doesn't even wake Peter up. And the text tells us that the angel had to hit him on the side. Like I love this. Peter is so at peace. He's sleeping like such a baby. This angel shows up. He's like, hey, Peter, I'm here to get you out of here. Let's go. Peter's still knocked out. And I picture this angel like getting frustrated. Like, Peter, what are you doing? I'm here to get you out. Wake up. And finally, the angel walks over and just like kicks him in the ribs. Like, that's what it takes to wake up Peter. Because he's not afraid. He's not worried. He's not riddled with fear and anxiety at the fact that in his mind he's about to die. He is sleeping peacefully like a baby. I mean, how is that possible? The only way that's possible is because years before this, Peter had witnessed his best friend Jesus be murdered at the hands of unjust Roman rulers just like Herod. But Peter saw that after his best friend Jesus was dead, he came back to life. And Peter, a few days after Jesus' death, he sat on a beach and had breakfast with his previously dead friend. And Peter believed with all of his heart that what happened to Jesus, his resurrection from the dead, would ultimately one day happen to him as well. And so Peter had this overwhelming faith and believed that however things turned out, Like whether he kept his head or he lost his head, whether he lived or died, he knew that because of what Jesus did, Peter knew that he too would ultimately rise from death and live forever. The only way Peter had peace in the midst of not knowing how this would play out was he remembered he was on the winning side. He remembered that God wins. Look how this story in chapter 12 ends. It goes on in verse 20. It says, now Herod, he was very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. 
So they sent a delegation to make peace with him because their cities were dependent upon Herod's country for food. The delegates won the support of Blastus, Herod's personal assistant, and appointed, an appointment with Herod was granted. When the day arrived, Herod put on royal robes, sat on his throne, and made a speech to them. The people gave him a great standing ovation, shouting, it's the voice of a God, not of a man. And instantly, an angel of the Lord struck Herod with a sickness because he accepted the people's worship instead of giving glory to God. So he was consumed with worms and died. But meanwhile, look at this, meanwhile, the word of God continued to spread and there were many new believers. So, so how, can, how can Peter sleep like a baby? How can he have peace even in the midst of suffering before he even knows if his prayer will be answered how he hopes it will? How does he do that? He knows and he remembers that in the end, God wins. And that's ultimately what this story is reminding us of. I love this ending here. Because the story started out in chapter 12. It starts with Herod trying to stamp out the church. With Herod trying to stop the church and the spread of the gospel in its tracks. And at the beginning of the chapter, it seems like Herod is winning, doesn't it? It seems like Herod's going to be victorious because James is dead and Peter is in chains. That's how the story starts. But the story ends with God's judgment coming down on Herod, Herod dying, and the church moving forward in power. I love that. Meanwhile, the word of God continued to spread, and there were many new believers. So, man, when the darkness comes and invades our life, and again, it just feels like the enemy is at your doorstep, ready to tear you apart, Remember, what you do is you pray. Even if you're struggling, you pray. Even if you're filled with doubt, you pray. Even if your prayers are weak and frail, you pray. And as you pray, you remember that regardless of how God answers your prayer, because the reality is, is God will answer your prayer. It may not be the answer that we hope for, but God always hears and God always responds. He will answer your prayer. But as you pray, you remember that even if he doesn't answer your prayer on this side of eternity, how you hoped he would answer, you remember that you will have victory. That if you are in Christ, meaning if you've repented from sin, meaning turned away from sin, turned away from living for yourself, to turning and trusting in Jesus' death and resurrection, following him as Lord and Savior. If you've done that, if you are in Christ, then listen, you will rise from death. You will live forever with God in his kingdom. He promises that on that day, he will wipe away every tear that you ever cried in this life from your eye, and you will feast with King Jesus forever in eternal joy. Listen, if you are in Christ, that's the promise that you have to cling on to. That is how your story ends. You will see victory. That's where we are headed. <laughs> 